Welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, December 28th. I'm Dagna, your reader for today. We'll start with the five-day forecast for the Siouxland area. Um, today will be breezy this afternoon with a high of 35 and a low tonight of 19. Friday will be mostly sunny with a high of 36 and a low of 21. And about the same for Saturday, mostly sunny with a high of 35 and a low of 16. Sunday is going to be a more cloudy, breezy, and will be colder with a high of 24 and a low of 12. And Monday will be sunshine and patchy clouds with a high of 29 and a low of 18. And now we'll move to the mini editorial that's usually on the front page. And it was written today by Peggy Williams-Musney of South Sioux City. And uh, Peggy writes, I was very disappointed that I did not hear even one Christmas carol while shopping during the holiday season in Siouxland stores and businesses. I have asked some of my friends, and they did not hear any either. I wonder why. Again, this was written by Peggy Williams-Musney of South Sioux City. Our front page story headline is Halfway Done, Motorists Get a Glimpse of the Rebuilt, Flattened US-20. Major highway construction projects are best appreciated once they are fit completed. Halfway through the two-year reconstruction of two miles of US Highway 20 east of Sioux City, Iowa Department of Transportation and Sioux City officials already are looking at the benefits they believe the $32.6 million project provides motorists and future residents. IDT District 3 Transportation Planner Dakin Schultz said, I have gotten a lot of positive comments about how nice the project has turned out. From May to late November, the eastbound lanes from the U.S. 20 Gordon Drive and U.S. 75 Interchange east to Carroll Avenue were closed while workers moved tons of dirt to flatten hills and fill valleys and repave the route into Sioux City. The project's purpose is to even elevation differences between the eastbound and westbound sides. At the halfway point, motorists can see how the highway will look after the westbound lanes are rebuilt next summer. It's good the traveling public has a chance to see what's trying to be accomplished out there, Schultz said. With the driving lanes on a more even elevation, driver distance, driver sight distances are increased, making for safer travel, Schultz said. It's all with the thought of improving the safety and operations of the roadway, he said. The highway reconstruction also includes reconfiguration of the U.S. 20 interchange with U.S. Highway 75. This summer's work gives a glimpse into how the interchange will be changed. The long high-speed ramp from northbound U.S. 75 onto, onto eastbound U.S. 20 was removed and replaced with a modified ramp with a reduced speed limit and an acceleration lane to make merging onto U.S. 20 safer. The shorter ramp onto US-20 also makes room for the future extension of Glen Allen Road and development of its intersection with US-20 east of, U of Sioux City. US-20 improvements were designed to facilitate the completion of Glen Allen Road, a street that, when finished, will provide a new access point to the Whispering Creek housing development, adding convenience for residents there to enter and exit the growing area. The street currently turns south off of US 20 and provides access to Cornerstone World Outreach Church and one home before ending. It resumes farther to the south in Whispering Creek and continues south to Old Highway 141. 
Once next year's second phase is finished, city planners hope to see the improved stretch of highway open up Whispering Creek and neighboring areas to more housing and business development. There are not any new plans before the city yet, but it wouldn't be a surprise to see developers putting them forward soon in order to get the long approval process started so it's done about the time work on US-20 ends next fall. Definitely have a Glen Ellen connector opens that area to development and opens up more access for the people living there, said Chris Madsen, a senior planner in the city's planning division. The connection also could lead to an intersection that could facilitate development to the north of the highway as well. Once that connection is done, it opens that whole area up, Madsen said. The city would expect developers to include paving Glen Ellen Road as part of future proposals for the area. Water and sewer lines already are in place along the planned street route. The reconfiguration of the U.S. 2075 interchange reflects that expected growth, Schultz said. When completed, the interchange will include stoplights on U.S. 20 at the exit and entrance ramps on either side of the bridge over U.S. 75. It's a switch from a rural type of interchange to an urban one that accounts for the past and expected future growth east of the city. The stoplights will slow down current and increased traffic that future development east of Sioux City would bring. Before that can be realized, drivers will need to navigate another summer of head-to-head traffic in a construction zone with temporary stoplights. Eastbound and westbound U.S. 20 traffic planning to turn north onto U.S. 75 will be deterred south on U.S. 75 to the Morningside Avenue exit. A temporary stoplight at Morningside Avenue will control traffic crossing the bridge over the highway and entering the ramp to northbound U.S. 75. Our next story is concerning Nebraska. Governor Pillen will seek more tax cuts and no further abortion restrictions in 2024. A year ago, Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen took office as a relative political novice, touting minimal experience as an elected of office holder, reliant on a legislature that included 15 first-year lawmakers to deliver on his agenda. Now, after several policies he personally championed became Nebraska law in his first year as governor, Pillen is entering 2024 with political momentum and a legislature full of reliable allies, enough for a filibuster-proof majority when they vote in unison. With fewer than two weeks to go until the state's next legislative session begins, Pillen intends to yield his demonstrable power to address what he sees as two of Nebraska's biggest issues, property taxes and workforce challenges. And while he did not rule out placing an emphasis on the kind of culture war issues that divided the legislature in 2023, Pillen seems to have backtracked on his pledge to end abortion in Nebraska, focusing instead on economic issues. We all agree in Nebraska, every single one of us, property taxes are so out of whack, you don't even need to own property to be adversely affected, Pillen told the Journal Star. It affects everybody, from poverty on through, because wherever we live, if we're renting something, we pay too much rent because the property taxes are too high. The issue has been top of mind for months for Pillen, who in July created a working group to examine Nebraska's property valuations in Nebraska. The question I asked is, do we want to just stop property tax from getting higher or do we have to do more, the governor recalled. Pillen said that he and the handful of lawmakers who were included in the group agree, we have to do more. We have to cut property tax, and the adjective that was used was significantly, Pillen said. 
2023, Nebraskans paid more than $5 billion in property taxes, he said, an increase of about $1.5 billion over the last six years. The governor hopes to reduce the state's collective property tax bill $3 billion. It's bold, it's courageous, the governor said, but we are going to get that done. Pillen's plan to dramatically reduce property taxes comes as the state's future revenues live in doubt. The state's tax-cutting spree, which has included three rounds of income tax cuts over the past three years, will reduce state revenues by $3.1 billion over the next five years and will cost an estimated $1 billion annually by 2028, according to a November report from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a national think tank. And the school aid fund that state lawmakers established and poured $1 billion into this year as part of an effort to reduce property taxes will dwindle faster than state officials initially projected and could be depleted as soon as the early 2030s, according to a November report from the state's legislative fiscal office. Pillen said he isn't concerned by such forecasts. The reality is because of the fiscally responsible tax policy that we're getting in, our economy is going to keep growing and this Education Future Fund is sustainable, he said. The strength of our economy, the growth of agriculture, the growth of what's going on throughout our state, yeah, no, our Education Future Fund will be strong and vibrant, not a shadow of a doubt. The path to reducing state residents' property tax burden by 40% will include placing a hard cap on the growth of county and local governments, Pillen said. With that mandate came an acknowledgement from Pillen that he is trying to reduce the size of state government too. We have to challenge municipalities and counties, just like we are at the state level, to figure out new processes, to assess what we are doing, he said. Some of the things we're spending money on for services for Nebraskans makes no sense. Other members of the Nebraska's executive branch have been warning state agencies and boards for months that Pillen's agenda could target their own cash funds. Secretary of State Bob Evnen, who in October said Pillen is trying to cut the fat out of state government, in November warned the Nebraska Accountability and Disclosure Commission that the governor will likely examine the commission's $890,000 reserve fund. It is apparent that our governor is absolutely dedicated to reducing the size of government, Evnen said at the Commission's November meeting, noting that the Commission should be prepared to justify the amount of money in its coffers. Everybody is going to be looked at, he added. Pillen has faked backlash in recent months over his executive order ending remote and hybrid work options for both state employees, which has prompted nearly 600 state employees to seek new jobs, according to union survey data. The governor maintained that the order wasn't designed to cause an exodus of employees from state government, which already had more than 2,500 unfilled jobs before Pillen signed the order in November, but it could nonetheless aid his pursuit to reduce the size of his own branch. If we have positions empty for an extended period of time, it looks to me like we're doing okay, he said. We might have figured out some of the things we were doing really wasn't creating much value. Pillen, too, said the state cannot solve its workforce shortfall by throwing money at it. The internal issue mirrors the one Pillen is trying to solve for the entire state, where there are around 60,000 unfilled jobs and where the unemployment continues to hover around 2%. He intends to champion policies that will address child care and early childhood education access issues that have plagued the state in recent years, often keeping would-be workers at home due to mounting child care costs. 
That could include incentivizing businesses to come up with innovative ways to be hospitable employers to workers with young children. The Lincoln-based sports video analytics company Huddle, for instance, opened an on-site child care center on the first floor of its corporate headquarters this year. The governor hopes, too, to invest in trade schools and community colleges so Nebraska has plenty of electricians, welders, plumbers, and animal technicians in the coming years. Pillins at solving the state's labor shortage would also require workforce housing development. We don't have it solved, he said. If the legislature does focus on such economic issues in its upcoming 60-day session, it would mark a reversal for the nonpartisan body of lawmakers who spent much of last session locked in fierce debates over abortion and health care restrictions for transgender youth. Pillen, who championed LB 574, the bill maker, lawmakers passed in May to restrict access to abortion at around 12 weeks and banding banning gender-affirming surgeries for minors, previously seemed intent on facilitating another acrimonious session in 2024. The governor in June called the state's 12-week abortion ban, which he signed and celebrated, unacceptable, pledging to end abortion in Nebraska. But now, as organizers carry out a ballot initiative campaign intent on enshrining a fundamental right to abortion until fetal viability into Nebraska's constitution, Pillen's tone on abortion seems to have changed. Right now, today, we've got to make sure we protect every baby after 12 weeks of age, he said Friday. We sure as heck can't go backwards, so that's my focus right now. Pillen, though, rejected the implication that attempting to ban abortion outright might fuel the campaign meant to undo even the 12-week ban that his allies in the legislature passed in May. And he said his position now is not necessarily different than it was in June when he pledged to end abortion. What it is is there's a new thing that's happened, he said, referring to the ballot initiative campaign. I'm a believer that you've got to understand and see what cards you're dealt and try to assess the field. And that's where we are at today. That's where we are at today. The abortion ballot initiative campaign, which organizers launched in November, is among two such campaigns intent on undoing laws that Pillen championed and signed. Nebraska's controversial law providing tax incentives for donors to scholarship funds for private and faith-based schools will already be in the hands of voters after a coalition of advocates known as Support Our Schools Nebraska gathered more than 100,000 signatures to get the issue on the 2024 ballot. Pillen suggested the opposition to the Opportunity Scholarships Act was fueled by misinformation spread by the state's teachers' union. Still, though, Pillen himself won't appear on the ballot November 2024 ballot. Voters will offer a referendum on at least one of his administration's earliest accomplishments, if not two, when they weigh in on the Scholarship Act and potentially abortion access. The governor declined to speculate about the potential outcome of the referendums and said the successful bid to put the Scholarship Act to voters did not prompt any second thoughts over his support for the policy. No, I'm not going to give up on it. I'm not going to stop, he said, because it's about kids. Governor Noam to stump for Trump in Sioux City. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noam will travel to neighboring Iowa to stump for former President Donald Trump next week in Sioux City. Noam will headline a Team Trump Iowa MAGA event on January 3rd at Country Celebration Center, 5606 Hamilton Boulevard. Doors open at 6 p.m. with the program starting at 7 p.m. 
Up to two tickets each are available on a first-come, first-served basis by registering at donaldjtrump.com events. Noam, a two-term Republican governor, has been widely mentioned as a potential running mate for Trump in his bid to return to the White House. Iowa's GOP Governor Kim Reynolds has endorsed and has been campaigning for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, one of Trump's chief rivals in the Hawkeye State's January 15th caucuses, the first test of the presidential nominating season. Noam's visit to Sioux City, the largest city in western Iowa, comes just two days before Trump himself is set to campaign on the campus of Dort University in nearby Sioux Center. Trump last stopped in Sioux City on October 29th during a campaign rally at the Orpheum Theater. Trump, who lost the 2016 Iowa caucuses to Texas Senator Ted Cruz, but rebounded to win the nomination and presidency, is leading his primary challenges in Iowa by double digits in polling averages. The latest from 538 data website shows Trump ahead of DeSantis by 30.9 points and 33.9 points in front of Nikki Haley, his former U.N. ambassador. Sioux City Man Pleads Not Guilty of Fatal Shooting A Sioux City man has pleaded not guilty of fatally shooting another man earlier this month. Farron Starr, 38, entered his written plea last Thursday in Woodbury County District Court to one count of first-degree murder. A trial date has not been set. He remains in custody in the Woodbury County Jail in lieu of $1.1 million bond. Starr is charged with the December 3rd shooting death of Nathaniel Parker III. Police responding to a call of shots fired at 513 1⁄2 9th Street found Parker, 31, of Sioux City with a single gunshot wound in the chest. He was pronounced dead at the scene. According to court documents, an eyewitness who had been in the apartment with Parker told police that prior to the shooting, she heard a man she identified as Star arguing with Parker about money shortly before hearing a gunshot and seeing Parker fall backward. The witness said Star was standing in front of Parker and holding a gun. Three other witnesses told police Star told them shortly before the shooting that he was on his way to confront Parker about money. Starr was arrested December 6th without incident. He also had an outstanding arrest warrant in connection with a case in which he is charged with stabbing his girlfriend. He has pleaded not guilty to numerous charges in the November 2022 incident and is scheduled to stand trial in February in Woodbury County. If found guilty as charged, Starr would face a mandatory sentence of life in prison without parole. Nebraska State Trooper Deputy Honored for Rescue in Freezing Water A Nebraska state trooper and a Lincoln County deputy who jumped into freezing water to rescue a trapped one-year-old girl have been honored for their bravery. The actions of Trooper Alex Kaufman and Lincoln County Deputy Tyler Schultz were labeled as representative of the dedication and selflessness of public servants. During a press conference last Friday, the Governor uh, Jim Pillen and Colonel John Bolduck, Superintendent of the Nebraska State Patrol, presented the Patrol's Lifesaver Award to Kaufman and the Public Service Award to Schultz for their actions on Thanksgiving night. A two-vehicle crash on Interstate 80 near North Platte was reported about 9.45 p.m. on Thanksgiving. When Trooper Kaufman arrived, he found two vehicles on their sides and partially submerged in the waters of Fremont Slough. Vehicle Raffle The Catholic Diocese of Sioux City is launching a diocese-wide vehicle raffle today in an effort to raise funds for diocese Catholic schools spread throughout northwest Iowa. 
The $100 tickets are now on sale for the chance to win a $50,000 vehicle voucher. A maximum of 2,500 tickets will be sold between now and January 24th, with the winner drawn live on February 2nd on the Diocese of Sioux City Facebook page. February 2nd also concludes National Catholic Schools Week Observance. Proceeds from the ticket sales will be earmarked for Diocese Catholic Schools and Enhancement Grants. Schools apply for grants for a wide variety of projects, including tuition assistance, mental health awareness, continuing education for teachers, technology, and other areas. The raffle winner will have the opportunity to use their voucher at Knepfer Chevrolet or Rick Collins Toyota dealerships, both of Sioux City. Tickets can be purchased online at scdiocese.org raffle or by scanning the raffle flyer QR code, contacting the Diocese Catholic Schools, or emailing the Stewardship and Development Office um, at lexah at scdiocese.org. Schools may also have raffle tickets available for purchase at school events during the sales period. The voucher winner will be responsible for all taxes, fees, title, registration, license, and insurance. Raffle ticket purchases are not tax deductible. Individuals 18 years of age or older, as well as Iowa businesses, are eligible to purchase tickets. Now we move to another Nebraska story. Fortenberry's federal conviction overturned. Former Nebraska U.S. Representative Jeff Fortenberry is no longer a convicted felon, but he could face a second trial closer to home or nearer the seat of federal governance. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals is reversed Fortenberry's conviction Tuesday for lying or misleading FBI agents investigating foreign funds being funneled into the congressional campaigns, including Fortenberry's. Federal law prohibits raising or using foreign funds in congressional races to limit outside influence. The appeals court, based in California, agreed with Fortenberry's October appeal that federal prosecutors should have tried his case in one of two districts where his alleged offenses occurred instead of in Los Angeles, where the FBI agents were based and where the original fundraiser in question occurred. In Fortenberry's case, the court wrote, that should be in Nebraska or Washington, D.C., where FBI agents interviewed him. The crux of his appeal was that he was not afforded a chance at a trial venue closer to where the alleged crimes occurred. Federal prosecutors had argued that at least three circuit court decisions had concluded trials can have a proper venue where a crime was committed or where one was directed. Then the Ninth Circuit judges wrote that because the core of the alleged crime was the moment when Fortenberry allegedly lied or misled federal agents, it mattered little where the fundraising occurred or where the federal agents were based. The only connection between Fortenberry and the Central District of California, where he was tried and convicted, was that the agents worked in a Los Angeles office, the appeals court wrote. Fortenberry, in a statement, said his family is gratified by the Ninth Circuit's decision. Celeste and I would like to thank everyone who has stood by us and supported us with their kindness and friendship, he said, mentioning his wife. California-based FBI agents in 2015 began looking into campaign donations by Lebanese billionaire Gilbert Shagori, former U.S. Representative Lee Terry, uh, Republican of Nebraska, and former U.S. Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood were among the other officials whose campaign finances were probed. Terry has said he gave away a $5,200 donation he received after learning about the FBI investigation. 
Court documents, testimony, and recordings indicate that Fortenberry denied knowing about the $30,000 in illegal contributions from Shagori that his campaign collected during a 2016 fundraiser in Los Angeles. During the trial, prosecutors played a June 2018 recording of Fortenberry speaking with the organizer of the L.A. fundraiser. On it, the organizer, a federal informant, told Fortenberry the $30,000 was likely illegal, that it had been delivered in a paper sack from an associate of Shagori's. Fortenberry denied knowledge of any illegal contributions during an interview with the FBI at his home in March 2019. During a follow-up interview at his lawyer's office later in 2019, he also denied any knowledge of the donations being illegal. His attorneys argued that he had misheard, forgot, or had a bad connection during the call in which he was told the contributions were illegal. Fortenberry had been a longtime supporter of the mission of Shigori's organization, In Defense of Christians, which works to protect Christians and other religious minorities in the Middle East. Shigori lives in France. We'll now read the weekly column from Kathy Yoder, who is a devotional writer, and she may be reached at kathyyoder4 at gmail.com. And today she writes, I didn't actually see him for a long time. Oh, I talked to him, but I didn't see the person inside. For one thing, his beard had a life of its own. Long and bushy, it overwhelmed his small frame, swallowing up his face. I suspect it wasn't only for warmth, but also served as a barricade, preventing others from getting too close, from knowing too much. He never smiled, at least not at me. It was always about what you could do for him. I suspect that he was used to being overlooked and ignored. He lived in the shadows, not in the light. I'm guessing now, but if you live on the fringes of society, you may think you need to be pushy to get any help, even when help is right in front of you with an open hand and an open heart. But it takes a big step of faith to trust someone. It takes a big step of faith to accept health without demanding it. He didn't want me there, but I visited him when he got sick. We had a cautious talk. He did not reveal much. I think he assumed I would be judgmental. So he remained closed, with his beard as a barrier and his heart surrounded by insurmountable borders encompassed in barbed wire. Later, when I visited him again, his beard was gone. A person emerged. With a clean-shaven face, I could see him better, not only physically, but spiritually as well. He asked me for a copy of that prayer in the Bible. I asked him a few questions. Eventually, the word art came into the conversation. Oh, do you mean the Lord's Prayer, or Father who art in heaven? Yeah, that's the one. I want a big copy of that so I can read the words, and I want that other prayer too. I asked more questions. Finally, I said, are you talking about the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd? Yeah, that's the one. I want that in big letters too. So I made large print copies of both and delivered them as promised. He immediately tucked them under the pillow next to him, guarding them like a junkyard dog guards a bone. It also seemed as though he was protecting the very words on the papers. And then it came to me. He was clinging to those words like a lifeline, but not any lifeline, his only one. We talked a little more. I read the 23rd Psalm to him. I told him what this psalm means to me personally, how it has traveled with me my whole life. He listened intently. We prayed the Lord's Prayer together. There was a long, silent pause. Suddenly I said, I see a big change in you. It's like you've either found the Lord for the first time or you're wanting to come back home. Then this thought came to me. I'm sure it was from the Holy Spirit. 
Is there something who, someone who taught you about Jesus, maybe when you were a little boy? My mother. Those two words spoke volumes. He said them with reverence. Somehow I knew that he had not spoken of his mother for a very long time, and I saw something else, a lifetime of love expressed on his face. Without his bushy beard, he looked like a little boy. For just a moment, it was as if the Lord pulled back a curtain, and I truly saw that little boy, the one whose mother loved him so much. Without warning, I was filled with an amazing love for him. I was also filled with inexpressible joy to witness this lost sheep on the road to coming home. Yet, he still did not smile. I wondered why he didn't feel joy, too. Eventually, the truth came out. He didn't think that he could be forgiven for his sins. He was standing outside the sheep pen waiting to come home, but afraid that the good shepherd would not let him in. I've done a lot of bad things, he said to me, looking down. I don't think I can be forgiven. Smiling at him, I said, well, let me tell you something. You are wrong. You can be forgiven. You can come back home. We prayed together, and that lost sheep did come home. And when this found sheep entered heaven a few days later, I'm sure his mother greeted him with open arms, as did the good shepherd Jesus. If you're thinking your life, I'm sorry, if you're living your life thinking there's no forgiveness for you, you are wrong too. You think you don't deserve forgiveness? Join the crowd or the herd. Do you want to change your life? Some people don't. They say they do, but change is hard. Are you willing to change? Because if you follow the creator of the universe, there will be transformational change. Trust me, I know. Do you want to stop being lost and enter the sheepfold of the Good Shepherd? All you have to do is confess your sins, ask for forgiveness, and believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Ask him to be the Lord of your life today and forever. It is a decision you will never regret. There is no greater joy than to be counted among the Lord's faithful. It's a different kind of gift you can give yourself this Christmas that will last into the new year and for eternity. And again, this was written um, by Kathy Yoder, who is a devotional writer. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, December 28th. We'll now turn to today's obituaries. Lola Jean Wolf, 85, of Sioux City, died December 17th. Funeral service were held Wednesday, December 27th at 11 a.m. at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Lola will be buried in Riverview Cemetery in Rock Rapids, Iowa. Dar Lewis, 70, of Esterville, passed away Sunday, December 24th. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, December 30th at the Waterbury Funeral Service at 4125 Orleans Avenue in Sioux City. A visitation will be held at the same location starting at 9 a.m. Burial will be at the Memorial Park Cemetery in Sioux City at a later date. Dar A. Lewis was born on October 28, 1953 in Hayward, Iowa, son of Darwin J. and Dolores Jefferson Lewis. He graduated in the class of 1972 from East High School in Sioux City. He was involved in wrestling and was given a wrestling scholarship to Sioux Falls College in Sioux Falls. He transferred to Adams State College in Alamosa, Colorado, where he was involved with wrestling. He graduated from Morningside College in 1976 with a major in arts and PE and a minor in sociology. Dar worked as a brakeman and conductor on the Burlington Northern Railroad from 1977 to 1983. He married Candy Schnabel in Denver, Colorado. To this union, two sons were born, Travis Allen Lewis and Brian Graham 
Louis. They later divorced. Dar worked as an appraiser for Sioux City Assessor's Office and later transferred to the Dickinson County Assessor's Office. In 1994, he worked in the Emmett County Assessor's Office and became the Emmett County Zoning Administrator. Dar enjoyed woodworking. He helped build his folks' cabin on East Lake Okoboji. He had a passion for the outdoors, hunting, and fishing. He took many fishing trips to Canada, Minnesota, and South Dakota. He and his special friend, Becky, were able to fish in Mexico, St. Thomas, and the Keys with his college buddy, Randy Gendersey, on his fishing boat, the Free Enterprise. He looked forward to fishing trips with his sons and buddies. Walleye weekend was always special to have family and friends come up to the cabin and fish. Deer hunting was a yearly event also. Norma J. Kuhn, 91, died December 24th at a local facility in Sioux City. Funeral Mass will be at 10.30 a.m. Friday, December 29th at the Church of the Nativity with visitation one hour prior. Christy Smith Funeral Home is assisting the family. Donald J. Jeff Holstein, 69, of Sioux City, died Monday, December 18th. A celebration of life will be held this summer in Okoboji. Jeff was born on July 29, 1954. He graduated from Alta High School in 1972. He then graduated from Iowa Central College in Fort Dodge. After graduating, he became the assistant manager at the downtown Sioux City Walgreens store. Later, he went to work with his dad operating a tank wagon at Holstein Trucking. He then began working at Port Neal for Iowa Public Service, which later was renamed Mid-American Energy. He finished his career in Sioux City and retired in 2019 after working there for 40 years. On April 9, 1983, Jeff was united in marriage to Patsy Blitzel in Sac City. They then moved to Sioux City. They celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary this year. Jeff liked to be active and stay busy and throughout the years and had several side hustles. One was working for a friend that owned Little Chicago Deli, and the other was a lawn service with Kirk Merchant. He also enjoyed doing inside and outside house painting. His other dream was winning the big one, lottery, and continued to buy the same numbers every year. Growing up, he always played sports and excelled in track, football, basketball, and golf. His junior and senior year, his basketball team made it to the state championships and won in 1972. He loved watching all sports, but especially the Iowa Hawkeyes, Iowa State, Chiefs, and Astros. Jeff, whose nickname was Holy, had a lake house since 1992 at Okoboji, where he, they considered their neighbors friends. Marjorie Louch and that's spelled L-O-U-T-S-C-H, 94 of Lamars, passed away Tuesday, December 26, at her home in Lamars. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, December 30th, at All Saints Catholic Parish, St. Joseph Church in Lamars. Father Douglas Klein will celebrate Mass. Father Bruce Lawler will con-celebrate. Burial will follow at Calvary Cemetery in Lamars. Visitation with the family present will begin following the Catholic Daughters of the Americas Rosary at 5 p.m. on Friday, December 29th at All Saints Catholic Parish, St. Joseph Church in Lamars. There will be a scriptural prayer service at 7 p.m. Visitation will resume from 9.30 until service time on Saturday at the church. Arrangements are with the Waxwinkle Funeral Home in Lamars. Per Margie's wishes, we will observe a closed casket. In lieu of flowers, memorials can be made in Margie's name to a favorite charity of your choice. Bradley 
Joel Davis, 69, of Sioux City, passed away on Christmas Eve, December 24th. A graveside service will be held at 12 p.m. Friday, December 29th at Evergreen Cemetery in Walt Hill, Nebraska. Bradley was born May 6, 1954, in Sioux City, the son of Lloyd and Joyce Davis. He lived most of his life in South Sioux City and Sioux City. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Betty E. Fitch, 97, of Correctionville, passed December 22nd. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. January 2nd with visitation from 9 to 10.15 a.m. at Grace United Methodist Church of Correctionville. Interment will be at the Correctionville Cemetery. Armstrong Van Houten Funeral Home of Anthem is in charge of arrangements. Doreen K. Kunkel, 62, of Sioux City, passed away December 21st at a local care center. A celebration of life will be held Thursday, December 28th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Eugene Jean Philip Melby, 82, of Castana, Iowa, passed away December 23rd. Funeral service will be 11 a.m. December 29th at Soldier Lutheran Church. Burial will be at the Center Cemetery at Castana. Visitations will be from 5 to 7 p.m. December 28th at the Gosler Funeral Home Chapel with a 7 p.m. prayer service. Arrangements by Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments of Ottawa. Leo Carlberg, 84, died on Monday, December 25th from a brief illness at his home in Sioux City. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 11 a.m. on Friday, December 29th at Immaculate Conception Church, located at 1212 Morningside Avenue, with Father Brad Pelzel officiating. Burial will follow at Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will begin at 5 p.m. on Thursday, December 28th at Christy Smith Morningside Chapel, located at 1801 Morningside Avenue in Sioux City, with a rosary at 6.30 p.m. and a parish vigil service at 7 p.m. Leo was born July 18, 1939, in Sioux City to Alfred and Julia Kahlberg. He graduated from Heelan High School in 1957 and, except for his military service in the Navy, was a lifelong resident of Sioux City. Leo was united in marriage to Marty Binnebos on May 30, 1964, at St. Michael's Catholic Church in Leeds. Leo worked for Northwestern Bell in construction and lines maintenance. When Northwestern Bell and AT&T merged, he was a toll technician. He was proud to be accident-free his entire 36-year career at the phone company. He is part of the Communication Workers of America and Pioneers Retirement Group. Leo was an active member at the American Legion Post 697. He enjoyed playing softball at Hubbard Park and Floyd Ball Field. He enjoyed fishing, crossword puzzles, jumble, computer games, working on cars, and watching sports. He was an avid fan of Helan, Packers, Steelers, Boston Red Sox, and the Hawkeyes. Mary A. Swick, 80, of Dakota City, passed away Sunday, December 24th. Funeral service will be 1034 on Friday, December 29th at Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Prayer service at 7 p.m. on Thursday, December 28th at the funeral home. Bernice Evelyn Ballantyne, 90, passed away Wednesday, December 20th at the Good Samaritan Society in Lamars. She was surrounded by her family and their loving and loving staff. Visitation with the family will be held at 1 p.m. Friday, December 29th at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. The memorial service will follow at 2 p.m. with 
Pastor Mike Holinsky officiating. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Bernice was born June 19, 1933 in Sioux City, the daughter of Earl Levi Kellogg and Leoma Evelyn Kellogg. She graduated from South Sioux City High School in 1951. Bernice married Donald Arthur Ballantyne on March 5, 1960. She had three children, Doris, Terry, and Denise, and one stepdaughter, Lynn. Donald preceded Bernice in death on May 10, 1996. In addition to spending time with her family, Bernice had many hobbies and interests. Bernice was a great bowler. Her high series was a 677. One of her proudest accomplishments was that in her participation in the Big Bowl. She lost to her opponent, who was a professional bowler, in the last match, earning second place overall. Bernice worked at Bowling Alley starting at Sioux Village for over 30 years. She was the assistant manager for 18 years at KD Bowl and Plaza Bowl. She enjoyed playing poker machines, rummaging, embroidering, boating, fishing, winning bingo at Good Samaritan, and playing cards with her family, and she was a dedicated Husker football fan. She was known for her rag rugs and gifting them to her friends and family. Bernice loved her dog, Smokey, and more recently, while in the nursing home, she enjoyed watching and taking care of the courtyard squirrels. Bernice was very proud of her children and what they became. She loved all of her grandkids, great-grandkids, and great-great-grandkids, and all of her siblings and in-laws. Verna L. Van Ort, 83, of Lamars, passed away on Sunday, December 24th. Funeral services will take place at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, December 28th at St. John's Lutheran Church in Lamars. Burial will follow at Memorial Cemetery in Lamars. Visitation will begin at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, December 27th at the Maurer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. The family was present from 5 to 7 p.m. with a prayer service at 7 p.m. There will be a one-hour of visitation at the church prior to the funeral service on Thursday. Bernice Ruth Dixon, 95, of Marcus, passed away on Monday, December 25th. Funeral services will take place at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, December 29th at Grace Methodist Church in Marcus. Burial will follow at Marcus Amherst Cemetery. Visitation will begin at 4 p.m. on Thursday, December 28th at Grace Methodist Church. The family will be present from 5 to 7 with a prayer service scheduled at 7 p.m. There will also be one hour of visitation at the church prior to the funeral service on Friday. The Ernest Johnson Funeral Home of Marcus is assisting Bernie's family with arrangements. Dorothy Boyle, 92, of Danbury, passed December 23rd. Funeral Mass will be at 11 a.m. December 29th with visitation from 9.30 to 11 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church of Danbury. Interment will be at the St. Mary's Cemetery in Danbury. Arrangements by Armstrong Van Houten Funeral Home of Mapleton. Bradley William Brunson, 59, of South Sioux City, passed away December 19th. A celebration of life at Park Jefferson Speedway in the Heated Bar area will be from 1 to 4 p.m. on January 20th. Arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. And that concludes the obituaries. We'll now move to an article called The Year in Eats. 2023 will go down as a year we discovered beer and tacos can become BFFs, that the tastiest Cajun cuisine can be found on Native American reservations, and that blueberry vanilla goat cheese was actually, you know, like a thing. 
Yes, this year has truly been an eventful one for Siouxland foodies, and has uh, and the weekender has been your opinionated dinner companion during the past twelve months, and we relive some of the favorite food food moments from twenty twenty three. The first one: pulp boys and fried bread. In a small restaurant located inside the Ho Chunk Plaza, Reggie Fraser makes the most mouth-watering food on the Winnebago Reservation. So, what was on the menu on a Friday in June? It was an Alaskan po' boy sandwich served with zesty Cajun sauce and a Creole-inspired coleslaw. The po' boy is one of the most popular lunchtime offerings, Fraser said. He owns R Eats, and that's spelled R-E-A-T-Z, a, a 504 Ho-Chunk Plaza Cafe with his wife, Rita. It's almost as popular as our Chinese beef and broccoli or our pulled pork nachos. Wait, New Orleans-style po' boys, Asian cuisine, and south of the border where border fair? That wasn't what we were expecting from an eatery inside a Native American reservation in North Thurston County, Nebraska. I can also make Indian fried bread, Fraser, a culinary school trained chef said, but I like to experiment. A member of both the Winnebago and Santee Sioux tribes, Fraser originally opened R Eats as a once every Friday stall in the Ho-Chunk Village Farmer's Market before moving into a more permanent storefront location in February 2023. People found out that Reggie can cook anything. Uh, R Eats quickly acquired a cult following. Indeed, you'll see a line of customers all the way out of the door of Fraser's small diner around lunchtime. And now we move on to burritos and brewskis. Jackson Street Brewing's Dave Winslow is betting a freshly made carne asada taco will make you reach for one of his craft brew creations. That's why El Kamal, an eatery featuring authentic Mexican food, opened up inside Jackson Street Brewing 607 Fifth Street's tasting room. When Winslow opened El Kamal, or the griddle in Spanish, back in July, he enlisted Leo Mendez, a food industry veteran. Self-trained, Mendez started cooking at the ripe old age of eight. Leo's family owns La Victoria, a grocery store which is known for having the best meat department in Sioux City, Winslow said. Leo was the store's butcher. In addition to tacos, burritos, and tortas, Mendez recommended El Kamal's carne asada fries, which is a loaded plate of French fries buried in a sea of beef, tomatoes, and peppers, and a zesty sauce. The carne asada fries is a perfect meal for you to share with someone else, Winslow said, but it is so good you'll probably eat it all by yourself. And then a new take on a meat and cheese tray. Is there anything more Midwestern than a meat and cheese tray? Riley Sawyer did not think so. Growing up, the Dakota Dunes residents remembered the elaborate platters her mom would make, containing a multitude of prepared meats, cheeses, and crackers. They were always delicious, and people loved them, she said. Personally, I thought they could be a bit prettier. Learning the art of charcuterie, a French term that basically means a fancy meat and cheese tray, Sawyer started Dune's Cheese Gale in 2019. I started out doing trays for family, she told the weekender in November. Then they'd recommend me to their friends. When creating a Dune's Cheese Gale charcuterie board, Sawyer makes sure to include meats like prosciutto as well as regular and peppered salami. In addition, she'll add visual interest with fresh fruits and jams, as well as a savory and salty 
to activate a person's taste buds. So what is the Dunes Cheese Gal's secret weapon? Believe it or not, it is blueberry vanilla goat cheese. My blueberry vanilla goat cheese is one of my go-to cheeses, she said. It is purple and delicious and everyone seems to like it. <clears throat> and our next one is Scooby-Doo approved snackage. You may not be able to find a multi-meaty, mouth-watering mystery sandwich at a food truck yet, but the Scooby-Doo inspired snack was a big winner during Pro Star's third annual food truck competition held at North High School in March. A partnership between the Iowa Restaurant Association and the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation, ProStart gives culinary and or business-minded students the skills needed to make it in the food service industry. That included creating a Shark Tank-like contest where students concocted a concept for a food truck, a marketing plan, and a menu proposal, which will be evaluated by a panel of industry experts. The students had less than a month to come up with their ideas, instructor Kelsey Miller explained. Some of their plans were so imaginative. Oh, it was the mouth-watering mystery sandwich, a meal created by a team headed up by North Senior Carly Morris that won the approval of the judges. Though your shaggy-like friends at the Weekender had no say in the matter, this sandwich was indeed spectacular. And now, uh, nighttime is the right time for noshing. For three months, the Yummy Blocks food truck lot was filled with food trucks featuring different types of international cuisine, face painting, arts, crafts, and even a live DJ. It was something that Alejandra Amazuka always wanted. Big cities often have these exciting outdoor night markets with plenty of good food, a variety of vendors, and family-friendly activities, she said, right before the launch of the 712 Night Market at 700 West 7th Street. We wanted Sioux City to have its own night market. Alexandra and her husband, German Amuzuka were already veteran food truck entrepreneurs, having started La Palapa, which features sweet, spicy, and savory drinks, snacks, and snow cones, similar to the ones found at authentic snack bars in Mexico. The night market is a one-stop shop when it comes to food. You can have Mexican, American, Thai, or Korean infused food all in one setting. However, the 712 night market was much more than just food. She said it was more like a weekly neighborhood festival. The food is what brings people to the night market, she said, but it is fun that keeps them coming back. And now, Dear Abby. Dear Abby, I have been seeing the same man for a year and a half. In the beginning, we were basically friends with benefits, and we were okay with that. Having both gone through recent breakups or divorce, neither of us wanted anything serious. However, after six months passed, I started falling for him. He always made clear that if he didn't want to go down that road, we would we would break ties. But the way he acted indicated that maybe one day there would be more. After eight months, we found out I was two months pregnant. Our baby changed how we both felt about a relationship, but we had things we needed to work through before going down that road. I started therapy, not for him, but because I knew I needed it for myself and ultimately our daughter. We moved in together five months ago. Being together with our daughter has been wonderful, and it has made me fall even more in love with him. When I recently told him I wanted to officially be his lady, he said there are still a few things he wants me to work on. Not personality changes, but things like the fact that I'm pushy. I recognize I can be that way, and impatient too, but I feel I wouldn't be so pushy if he gave me more def 
definitive answers. What do you think about this? Signed, ready for a real relationship. And Abby's response, I applaud you for seeing a therapist to work through your issues. Now I think the time has come for you and this man to seek couples counseling to determine whether you can iron out your differences. I'm not sure whether you two were really on the same page from the beginning. Counseling should help you decide how to move forward now that there is a child involved because you will be co-parenting for a long time regardless of the direction your relationship takes. Now, Dear Abby, my husband and I own a parrot we take with us pretty much everywhere. He draws a lot of attention and questions from strangers, which I'm usually happy to answer. You might be surprised at how many people own or have owned birds, and many of them love to share their stories about how their parrot or parakeet died. It's often from neglect or improper care or breeding. These stories are often related in a jovial way, as if they should be amusing or relatable. It's really upsets me to have to stand there nodding with a fake amusement or sympathy. I'm tempted to say something snarky, but I refrain. I love birds, and I don't like being reminded how disposably they are treated. People don't tend to share graphic stories about dead dogs, cats, or children in public. It makes me sad to hear about their dead birds every time I go outside to enrich my own pet's life. What can I say to stop this unwanted and depressing storytelling before it gets started? Signed, Bird Lover in North Carolina. And Abby responds, Try being honest and telling these people that hearing about their experience makes you sad and why. That should shut them up. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, December 28th. I'm Dogna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.